0: This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Episode four, The Game Has Changed.
1: Hey, Sarah, did you know that according to the CDC, every day more than 115 Americans die from overdosing on opiates? And on top of that, they estimate that the total economic burden of prescription opioid misuse alone in the United States is $78.5 billion a year.
2: That's just astounding. And, you know, we see these patients in our ED every day. And let's be honest, sometimes they are our least favorite or most difficult patients. Yeah, absolutely. They are the drug seekers. They bring the foul-smelling abscesses, the rotten mouths and dental infections, or they come in overdosing. They get angry and they vomit everywhere when we give them the reversal (laughs) agent naloxone. They may have coexisting mental illnesses complicating their presentations, and they are often struggling with homelessness. They might be wearing dirty clothes. They haven't showered for a couple weeks. It is so easy to dismiss these patients.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's such a powerful topic. And I'll be honest with you, it's not one that I'm 100% comfortable with. You know, being page trained and especially on the West Coast, I don't see this. I don't think about this every day. But I do worry every time I write an opiate prescription that I'm starting something that I won't be able to stop. I can't unwrite this prescription. I have this balance because I don't want to leave a patient in pain either. And I know that about 80% of people who use heroin first misused my prescription opiates. Well, maybe not mine, but our prescription opiates.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we know this is a really hot topic right now. So before we get started, let's define some basic terms. Okay. Opiate use disorder. So the DSM-5, which is our
1: diagnostic handbook, right? They basically define it as needing to take more and more opiates with an inability to stop. A great deal of effort is put into obtaining these opiates. You have cravings. It's affecting your ability to function or even to be safe. Persistent use despite knowing it's a problem with increasing tolerance and withdrawal. That's a lot of stuff, but basically there's a lot that goes into it and you have to really be wanting it and moving past all the bad stuff that's associated with it. Also, you're going to hear the word suboxone. Suboxone is used kind of interchangeably with our generic term of buprenorphine slash naloxone. It's a combination drug that has a really, really long-lasting partial agonist. This is a part of the opiate agonist treatment protocols that a lot of departments and universities are using. You've probably heard of methadone before, which is actually a full agonist, meaning the more medication you give, the more effects that you have. The cool thing is buprenorphine has less potential for abuse, addiction, and overdose than methadone because it's only a partial agonist. And when it's combined with naloxone, the naloxone blocks the effects if you take extra opiates on top of that medication.
2: Yeah, thanks for defining that, Julia. So now let's get into our story. And if you're listening with kids in the car, be aware that this is a very adult topic. So our story today comes from an amazing resilient survivor, Rachel. She has a really interesting perspective because she suffered from opiate addiction herself in her teens after getting opiates in the ED, and later her son suffered from addiction too as a young adult. She's now an addiction counselor, and she's here to give us the inside personal perspective that I think we so often miss as providers dealing with these, quote, difficult patients.
1: You know what's crazy, Sarah, is this woman has been through hell and back and has such an amazing story. And yet there's so much stigma associated with opiates that she is talking to us under a pseudonym. She didn't even want to tell us her real name for the purposes of this podcast.
3: Well, good morning, and my name is Rachel, and I'm here to hopefully share some of my experience, strength, and hope to assist people in this epidemic. My story started off as a young girl who was bullied and was molested as a child. And I hid that because of my pride, and it was such a big secret. I am a sufferer of migraines, and I was 16 years old, and my father had taken me to the emergency And they had given me an opiate. And when I took that opiate, I'll never forget it that this was exactly what I was looking for. And it felt like these two arms, and it was like someone that was comforting and empathetic and safe put their arms around me. And that was that. And I knew I had to have that. This is what I needed for the rest of my life. My life revolved around. Chaos, vulnerability, sickness, rape—over and over and over again. I became immune to that. I was savagely beaten and raped trying to make money for my medicine, and I ended in the hospital, the trauma unit. I had stitches in my head. I had a broken teeth. I was full of bruises. And as soon as that went away. I was back on the street because that's how powerful it is. I look back until I was in my early, early 20s and my mother finally coaxed me into the car. I, I couldn't get into her car before. She would come looking for me and I wouldn't and I couldn't get into her car, but this time I trusted her and she said, I'm taking you to the hospital and they're going to help you. And I got into her car thinking, I'm with my mom, I'm in her car and someone's going to help me And they're going to put me in a hospital because I'm ready to get off these streets. I don't want to live my life like this anymore. I don't want to be on the streets in the rain. I don't want to do this. I don't want to see my friends dying. I want some help. And maybe I can become that veterinarian. And maybe I can become that nurse. And I got into the car with her. And I remember waiting hours with her. And I'm in this detox. They finally took me back and they turned us away because I was just a little junkie. And I had, this was part of it. And this is what I had to do and go through this pain. Now, let's go back to what the pain is like. If anyone's ever had an abscess tooth, that's what it is. And you're full of anxiety and you're full of the trauma and you're full of what you did and the guilt and the shame and all of that into one thing that you're a a young girl and you don't have the coping skills and you are damaged goods. And this is what you're supposed to be. That's where I was at. So you go right back to the heroin, right back there, because you think you belong. Can you tell us a
2: little bit about your experiences with the medical community when you were coming in for abscesses or after being beaten or things like that? What kind of experience did you have in the emergency room or
3: urgent care, wherever you were? At that time, maybe people weren't equipped. Okay. I had so many, there was layers and layers and layers Of what it is to be a heroin addict. There's the trauma. There's the positive TB test. There's all these things that when you come in with, you know, as a patient, what are you going to do with me? How are you going to place me? Where are you going to take me? Uh, Maybe I'm on methadone. This place doesn't take someone on methadone. I think that what happens is the stigmatization of knowing that is that even that the right word? Um, knowing that I'm a heroin addict. And that um, she's just a junkie. Um, this is her life. She chose to do this. Well, I don't have a choice at that time because my brain is, is different. Okay, I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. And that's called addiction.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about how you finally decided that this was the time to get clean and how that finally happened and what changed and made it different that time? I was
3: in a crack house. And there was an, another girl who knew me and she was in a sober living she had told um, someone about me and who was a woman whose name was janelle who took in women who fell through the cracks and this was far away from oakland and i got a phone call in the crack house and it was a woman saying honey do you want some help i said i thought no one could help me she goes I can. I have a place that you can go. You can come to. And for some reason, I trusted this female again. I just trusted that this could work for me. And she took me in. And she ran Sober Living's. They put me on the methadone clinic. And we light our way into a <laughs> a treatment program. They showed mercy on me. And I came off the methadone. But however, when I came off the methadone, I only stopped at 10 milligrams. So I kicked again, and it was horrific. But mind you, I had a little boy, and I was too weak to get out of the bed. I was too in pain, and I decided to get clean. That's amazing.
2: Now, Rachel, you now work as a substance abuse counselor, right? Absolutely. How do you think addiction has changed? How do you think opportunities to get clean or the opportunities to to get drugs and then the
3: opportunities to get clean. How has stuff changed now? The game has changed. I've been in uh, my field for some years now and I remember us saying, no, you know, the girl's got to kick, the girl's got to do this, go through the withdrawal so she can learn a lesson or what have you. But that's always been in the back of my mind. That doesn't work. The game has changed. This epidemic has flooded suburbia. You do not need to be in the tenderloin. You do not need to be in the cities, in the concrete to obtain this drug. The game has changed with Suboxone. But the main ingredient, I think, is this, is hands-on. It's like having a snake bite. You have this snake bite. You go into an emergency. You know there's an antidote. But what if someone says, ah, maybe they're not that. We don't have that antidote. Or maybe they're not that candidate. And you go home with this snake bite, that confessor you can die from. It needs to be right there, because when someone with the addiction changes their mind like this, because you're in so much pain, all these things are flooding through your mind, you have to have this drug, And we're losing a generation of children. My own flesh and blood, my own child, this little boy I have, started using because it was available and the Oxycontins, and this and that, and pills, and what have you, and seeing the decline in my own child, and knowing what was ahead of him. I have gone into hotel rooms, knocking on doors, looking for him, asking the prostitutes on the street, have you seen this boy, knowing that he could die. People opening up the doors, and seeing these young people in there, in packs And the smells, and I know what that smell of infection, that bacterial sweet is, and looking for my own son, because I know he's in those hotels somewhere. And getting him and saying, Mommy can help you. I'm taking you somewhere. And we're going to help you. We're going to help you. Because I know this is available. And being turned away and sitting there like my own mother did and being let down. And it feels like your stomach just falls through you. All the hope disappears. What do we do for my child? This is not a fever I can tend to. This is not something he has a broken leg and he can go into surgery and we'll take care of this. This is not that. This is something much different. And being enmeshed with your own child and knowing that child could die because that's the end result. The bottom is death. That's the bottom. And now someone showed mercy on him. And he was able to obtain the Suboxone. And this was a couple of years ago. And in this time that my child was able to take the Suboxone, his best friend, this child that I had in my car, looking in back of me and seeing this wild blonde hair bouncing back and forth to the music, od and died. My child has been on the Suboxone, has been able to go through a program, And stay in a program, get jobs, has his own little place with a beautiful, beautiful girlfriend and is living a life, living a life, living a life because of Suboxone, because of Suboxone. The game has changed. The game has changed. We are seeing a generation of children that are dying from this because of the availability of this drug. These children are not equipped to be on the street. I am so pro methadone, but I'm so pro the Suboxone right there, right there. And knowing that this can work. And I'm not saying it's going to work for everybody, but if we can just help one, like my own child, we can help so many. So with your clients now.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of people on Suboxone? Yes, I do. Yeah. When you see that compared to Methadone, how do they compare? Is it a different thing? What do you see from that end? I see a light
3: because I was asleep for my own self for 13 years. I see a light. The lights are on with the Suboxone. They're laughing. They're talking. They're happy. With the Methadone, something's asleep. With the Suboxone, you can tell there's a light. Someone's awake. Um, There's hope. With the methadone, it's a little bit different.
2: Do you think the stigma is different between people that are on methadone versus Suboxone?
3: Yes, I do. Years ago, we knew that there was doctors that can give us Suboxone, but it was out of our reach. We knew there was the gift out there. We call it the gift. We knew it was out there but how are we going to obtain this money and go to Sonora and, and get this Suboxone from this certain doctor? And it's still that way with certain doctors could prescribe this medication. Okay, so we have to figure it out and how can they do this and how how can we obtain that? With the methadone clinic, you can get on the methadone clinic. And what happens is you get wrapped up. When I was sick and I go, okay, I relapsed, I'm sick. I know where to go is with the methadone clinic and I can obtain anything I wanted. And what we do is that we take a secondary drug or a third drug, like we, t- we chew up some clonopin, or we chew up the Valium to get that little more nod in there. And then I want to come up, so I want to smoke some crack. And so you just go to the methanol, clivic go get some coffee, you're loaded again. Wow, I lived it. Yeah, I lived it. With the Suboxone, you see this different kind of life. They're doing things, they're concentrating. What I'm not doing is, is putting people down that are that are on methadone because I was on it for years and years. Yeah. I, I saw it work for certain categories. But what happens with it is that you get to this level that you, you feel like you don't want to do anything. You're asleep and all this trauma and all this, this depression comes along with it. It's a depressant. You're, you're depressed. What
2: would you like doctors to know about that child that's being brought in, overdosed or looking for help What would you like medical professionals to know?
3: That it could be your child. And even though we see the children that have these track marks or their their teeth are rotten, they once were someone's baby. It can be anyone's child, anybody's child. And if you don't know someone, yeah, you do. You do now, because it was my child, and I was someone's child. And we, all of us, once were children.
1: Just like in our human trafficking discussion a few months ago, Rachel didn't get help the first time she was seen by a provider. It was over time, and with people providing safe and loving relationships. That's trauma-informed care providing that safe place and having the right tools for when they want to get help at that right time. You will find in our next interview that this concept of creating a safe
2: place comes up again and again. Yeah, so now let's talk about some real solutions to this problem. We have the pleasure today of speaking with Gail D'Onofrio, who is professor and chair of emergency medicine at Yale. And Gail is boarded in both emergency medicine and addiction medicine, so she is a real expert on this topic. We're then going to talk with Josh Elder, who's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. He completed a health policy and research fellowship with a focus on addiction medicine, and he actually worked with Gail at Yale. He's now working with Amy Moulin to tackle this issue in our department at UC Davis. People like Gail D'Onofrio and Josh have changed the game for opiate treatment by starting the treatment in the emergency department and then arranging outpatient follow-up for many of these people suffering from opiate use disorder. Thank you both for being with us today.
1: Okay. Before we get started, Gail, help me out here. How can we frame this in a way that people like Rachel are not
0: stigmatized so that they feel comfortable having this discussion in our emergency department? So in order to decrease stigma and get people into treatment, because that's the number one reason people don't go into treatment is because they're stigmatized about it, is that we use the right words. So um, even though that's really hard the words are really that someone has an opiate use disorder or they have an addiction and that they aren't, quote, addicts. We don't say that diabetic over there. We don't define people by their illness. We also try not to talk about clean and dirty urine since we don't talk about if you have glucose in the urine, whether it's clean or dirty. So we say that it's a positive urine or it's a negative urine. That we don't say it's a problem again. That it's a disease. That we don't say that we relapse so much is that we are in you know remission or we're in recovery. You know, so all these words are really important. They're not babies who are addicts because babies can't be addicts. They have abstinence syndromes. And so if we treat it like a disease, a chronic relapsing disease, then people will understand it more and people will be less stigmatized. So words matter. Accurate words matter, and we can be part of. Making that happen. Back in 2015, you published a large study in JAMA
1: that was called the Emergency Department Initiated Buprenorphine Naloxone Treatment for Opioid Dependence, a randomized clinical trial. This randomized clinical trial compared three different things. You screened with a brief intervention and then ED initiated treatment of buprenorphine naloxone, and then you had them follow up in a primary care clinic for 10 weeks' treatment. The second intervention was screening with a brief intervention where you kind of talked to them about readiness and facilitated a referral to community-based treatment services, um, helped them contact that facility. And then the third one was screening and then just given a list of treatment options or referrals out in the community. So you found in that third group in the buprenorphine, naloxone, and referral treatment group that there was significantly increased engagement in addiction treatment, decreased seven-day self-reported use of opiates, and decreased use of inpatient addiction services on the short term. And this foundational paper established not only is buprenorphine and naloxone treatment in the ED feasible, but it has better outcomes than simple referral or referral and a brief intervention. One of the more recent papers that you published, Gail, was addressing the cost effectiveness of this treatment of bup treatment in the ED. And I thought it was really interesting that you found the types of treatments received following ED discharge differed considerably by treatment group. So there was more benefits in the ED-initiated treatment with bup and slightly less healthcare costs. And I think that's very important in the grand picture of things. It is. So
0: that uh, analysis was uh, done by Susan Bush, who's a professor of economics, really, and health economics. And um, I could not begin to explain how she did this analysis. But the important thing to to note is that patients in the buprenorphine arm who had two times more success in getting into a formal addiction treatment at 30 days, that those patients were outpatients primarily. And as an outpatient, they would still see a doctor a couple of times a week. But that's much less than it is to getting an inpatient bed. And so we often say for opiate addiction that we need more chairs. We don't need more beds because we can do this with less costs. But it doesn't mean that it's less utilization because they'll be seeing a doctor fairly routine until they get into a stable dosing regimen. But we found that at any willingness to pay, no matter what you chose from a neutral area to anything else, that buprenorphine was more cost-effective. And it also showed that for a decrease in one day of illicit opiate use, that we were also cost-effective. So that was good news. And that was only healthcare costs. It doesn't take into all the other costs that could be associated, less crime and you know, less incarceration, et cetera. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: What is your perspective on how the ED provider plays
0: a role in this national crisis and how can we help with it? So I think that emergency physicians you know, are great problem solvers. If we couldn't, we can work where we are, right? Yeah. I mean, we do life and death all the time. So we pretty much are a high-risk group of people. And I think most emergency physicians are into their communities. And since the ED is the front door of their community... They are interested in helping what's going on. We're also a group that tell me the algorithm, tell me it's evidence-based, and if you can make it easy enough for me to do, I'll do it, right? And I really don't think that you have to change anybody's attitudes about something. I don't think you have to because you're not going to. I don't think it's necessary. And as I say all the time, we don't ask people what their attitudes are about giving a tetanus shot. Do you happen to like that idea? Even though we've never seen a case of tetanus, we give it. 50 million people ask questions about tetanus. You Can't get out of there without a tetanus shot if you're injured. So why couldn't we normalize addiction similarly and really treat it like any other chronic disease or any exacerbation of a chronic disease? And let's get moving. So along those lines, let's get practical about this. Okay.
2: So how do you screen for opiate use disorder in the ED? How do you identify willingness to change? How do you even make patients comfortable talking about this
0: and sort of reducing the stigma? So we'll start first with screening, okay? So a lot of people get scared by that because we got to screen for a lot of things. Who's going to screen? And you've all been in trauma rooms that, you know, the American College of Surgery requires you as a loved one trauma and the nurse goes, you don't drink, do you? You know, (laughs) Do you live in a safe place? Well, I really don't know. My dog died last week, so I don't live in a safe place. So the way I feel about that is screening for opiate use disorder is not easy. Just start with the people in front of you. They're either coming in with abscesses. They're coming in with other soft tissue injuries. They're coming in with overdoses. They're coming in seeking help. In our study, a third of people were seeking help. About 10% were overdoses, and the rest were found by screening. But it's only a small group of people where you really have to know how to screen well because people are not going to come out and just say, oh, yeah, I happen to use a whole lot of Percocet. We do know some questions that we found that were helpful. If people said, do you use any of these lists here of drugs that are opiates? And if they said they used something, then we would ask them, you know, do they have to take more than they were prescribed? Did they've been using it more than they thought they would have to do, do they have any concerns about it? And that might open up some conversations. But quite truthfully, if we just start with the people that are, are right there in front of us, that would be a great change. That's the first step. The second is that you asked me about um, the conversation. So we have developed and tested this thing called the brief negotiation interview. It has four components. The first component is just introducing yourself if you haven't already and bringing up the subject. Um, the second is giving them feedback. So you'd say, hi, I'm Dr. Narfer. I'm going to be taking care of you today. I understand that you are here because of this abscess in your arm and that you're using you no know, heroin. And they'll talk about it. In that case, you might ask them how much are they using, but it's not that important. They're injecting heroin. You ask them how comfortable that they are right then because if they're In withdrawal, it's not a good time to having this conversation. You may, in that times of feedback, give them some information. Well, we're here to help you. We do have some treatments that could be available to you. And you can ask a few questions regarding, are they in treatment already? Have they ever been in treatment or whatever? And then from there, you move right on to enhancing motivation. And that is once you've had that conversation about, I think we could help you here, We know that you're using three or four times a day. I'm concerned about you, that you could overdose. On a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to want to accept some treatment here today? And most people will pick in the middle and you'll say, okay, so you chose a three. Well, you're 30% ready to accept that treatment. Can we talk about what were some of the reasons why you didn't choose a lower number? Meaning there are reasons to change. So they'll come right out and tell you things. Lost a lot of money, lost my home. So you reiterate that back. It's a little of motivational enhancement. And then you say, okay, so it sounds like this has been a really difficult time for you. How about we start something right now? Then you just decide what next steps are and you do it. You could imagine if I approached a patient, particularly after overdose or at any other time and say, so you want to get some treatment, you know, or (laughs) what do you want now? You know, you're going to die tomorrow if we don't do this, that that wouldn't go very well. So, it's just a matter of simply really just starting a conversation. There are many patients who will not want to change and will not want treatment, and you're not there to convince them to to say what you want them to say. You're there to say, I hear what you're saying. I would like you to do this because blah, blah, blah. But we can agree not to do that at this time. How long does having that discussion take you on average? So, um, in the study, we actually timed it, and that was less than 10 minutes. Um, But in real life, it's really less than five minutes, and it's really no more time than you would really spend with a person, and you can be doing it while you're doing other. If you have a procedure with the patient, you can be talking to them about it. You can do it at any time. A nurse could do it. A counselor could do it. It's really not that hard to do it. Yeah, it seems like a a fairly simple
1: team-based intervention that could reduce visits in the future and help get these patients to a healthier spot overall.
2: Yeah. And so then what, what's the next step? So they
0: say, okay, I'm willing, I'm interested. What happens next? Okay. So then we have a protocol. And the protocol is, first of all, the most important thing is that you have to know that this person has an opiate use disorder, right? So there are people who present to EDs with overdose or other things who are experimenting and you don't want to start someone on a chronic opioid that's experimenting. So at an adolescent that's just getting started, someone that's really only been on opiates for a month and got into trouble, it's not something that you want to do. It's also you have to know the criteria for opiate use disorder so that it's differentiated from patients who are dependent on the medication and tolerant because they've been prescribed it. But they're not doing this uh, unusual behavior. And they're not spending all their time trying to find it. They're not buying it off the street there's not all these behaviors that are associated with addiction and are clearly written out in the DSM criteria. So first of all, you have to be sure. Now that can be very complicated for some patients and may put people off. But again, if someone's coming in and they're shooting five bags of heroin a day, you don't need to go through all that, right? They have an opiate disorder, so (laughs) stick with it. So on those patients, once you know that you have someone with an opiate disorder, and we also require that we have a positive urine for opioids. That's how people are not coming in here telling you everything that you want to know so they can go sell it, right, literally. So they have to have a positive urine. They have to meet criteria for opiate disorder. Then in terms of whether or not you provide a dose in the ED is whether or not they are withdrawing or not. The only bad thing you can do with smoxone or buprenorphine is – Give it to someone who is not in withdrawal, who has other long-acting opiates on board because buprenorphine has an incredibly high affinity to the mu receptors. It will bounce everything else off of that. So if you have taken methadone and you don't tell me that, and you come in and you're slightly withdrawing and I give you this, I'm going to put you in full blown withdrawal, and it's the most worst thing you can ever imagine. So based on the history, based on the fact you think they have an opiate use disorder— and their CAL score, you can administer a dose. So in our study, if people were in sort of the end of mild to moderate, we would dose them with 8 milligrams of buprenorphine. It's miraculous. All you have to do is see one person in acute withdrawal and come back in at 30 minutes, and they're like normal. Wow. So you'll see them off the wall, and then you'll come back and go, oh, my God. And now you can continue the conversation in the point where you think, I cannot give it because they're not in withdrawal at all, then we did take homes. Um, But you do have to be able to have a waiver in order to write a script. So that's a real challenge and a barrier in that you have to have a waiver. For those who
1: don't have the special license to Mm -hmm. be able to give this, you give them one dose in the ED and then what happens after that? And so
0: then we follow them up. We're very lucky in New Haven because we have four or five different agencies that will take our patients the next day if not on Friday, by Monday. Buprenorphine is a long-acting opioid, by the way. So if you dosed it highly on one day and they couldn't get in for two days, you'd probably be perfectly fine. Physicians are allowed to administer. So that's really important. It's called the 72-hour rule. And that's an attempt to get patients treated for their withdrawal and bridge them to a other formal rehabilitation. So... You can, at that point, administer it, the buprenorphine. They can come back for two days and you could give them a second dose and a third dose. But you can only do that total of three days. If not, you need a waiver. So this
1: is really best done multidisciplinary. You really are dependent upon having a place for these people to go as an outpatient basis and then pass that baton on. Absolutely. How did you establish that? How did you find those connections?
0: So as part of the study, we did it all with primary care. And David Filene literally saw every patient, and that was maybe a contributor of the success. People like to go to primary care settings because they're sitting in the office with everybody else with chronic diseases or other acute illnesses. They're not stigmatized by standing in line in an opiate treatment program. And also, they get stabilized fairly quickly. So they might be seen a couple of times the first week, but then they can get weekly doses and then even monthly doses. So it works out. People can keep their jobs. No one needs to know why I'm there, et cetera. Whereas if you go to an opiate treatment program, it's much more difficult. You have to go every single day. You have to go for a long period of time before you can get take-homes. It's much more invasive on people's personal lives.
1: Yeah, I love
2: the idea of what you said at the beginning about looking for more chairs, not beds. Is there anything else that you think is important for ED providers to know in terms of maybe initiating something like this where they are?
0: The only other thing is I would say when I started out as a resident, we never uh, treated chronic disease. We referred it all, and that was high blood pressure or, you know, we admitted people with new diabetes We don't do that anymore, right? So we very frequently initiate hypertensive medications in the ED and refer. We very frequently start people on hyperglycemic agents and refer and do a very warm handout. So there's really no reason to believe why we shouldn't treat this any differently, and especially since there's so many people dying. And we need to step up to the plate and not have excuses of why we can't do it, but how can we do it? And how can we partner with our community? And how can we you know, really influence and and really improve the health of our public? Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time and your perspective.
2: Dr. D'Onofrio, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate everything that you've spoken with us about on all of the work that you've been doing and really making this more accessible to everyone. Josh, we talked about a really well-run slick operation initiating buprenorphine naloxone treatment at Yale, and I know you trained there and got to see it at work. So tell us about the project that you're getting going here at UC Davis and how you're using that.
4: Thanks for asking. You know, it's really a collaboration. You know, having seen what's possible there, we're, you know, really putting together our work group to think through how we can incorporate some of those solutions here at UC Davis. And the solutions are really focused on screening, so you know, trying to get patients the help they need when they come to us, Narcan distribution, getting Narcan to the folks that need it, and medication-assisted treatment. There are a lot of people coming through our doors that we could really leverage our connection to the community to help people in need.
2: And what made you decide to get this started?
4: Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, I've always been passionate about innovation, and health policy, and in particular the opioid epidemic. I think we have a real opportunity to take some of those lessons learned and, and some of those exposures I saw firsthand and try to implement them here to help our community.
1: How did you go about starting that project? That sounds huge.
4: Well, I was really fortunate. You know, I think a lot of things in life kind of being at the right place at the right time. But when I had interviewed and had come out here, I had met Amy uh, Malin, who is, you know, the current president of Calasap and really passionate about uh, substance abuse disorders. I had known that one of my fellow Robert Wood Johnson clinical scholars, Alicia Agnoli, was coming out here, who's really an expert uh, in uh, dealing with bup uh, in the outpatient uh, setting. She's a family physician. And I knew that I had leadership here, Nate Cooperman and a ton of the other research uh, faculty that were really invested in, in helping me and in, in growing this. Uh, Garen Wintemute, such a great mentor already that has really um, helped inspire me to kind of see the value of research and building this as a collaboration. And so with this, you know, both leadership helping me uh, kind of like facilitate and support me, and then these other colleagues around me, we've really put together a, a great bucket of ideas of um, experiences. I mean, Amy, knowing the, the legislative landscape and the political landscape and the policy landscape, and then having some exposure, Alicia and myself, to the East Coast, to having seen some of these things firsthand. And yeah, I think there was a real opportunity for a cohesion of that. That was kind of the first step, was just kind of seeing this shared interest. And then, I mean, really from the first week or two I arrived, we really kind of, you know, hit the ground running. And I think it's so neat to have Gail here today to kind of, you know, look at what we're trying to grow and get feedback from her about how we can uh, kind of amplify our efforts.
2: And as you start to roll this out, what kind of feedback or what kind of pushback are you getting from doctors? What kind of responses are you hearing
4: I've heard this quote that, you know, medicine is nothing more than politics on a small scale. And it's so true. Uh, A lot of the work we attempt to do in the emergency department can be really politicized and viewed as a politicized framework. And so I think this is a hot-button topic for a lot of people, that they say, here are patients that are coming through the emergency department. They're always here. How are my efforts going to change this? And they may have certain views on this about how, you know, we should utilize resources when patients come in with these type of problems. But when you look at the literature and when you look at the humanity of this, it's the right thing to do. And as we develop better algorithms and better ways and better toolkits for emergency physicians, my strong suspicion is culture and practice will change. It's like anything else, you know, door to balloon time, anything that we start to measure, that we start to tell providers, you have to do this. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. You have to do this and depoliticize the work that's important and that's evidence based. It will change practice. But I think it really is going to require a culture of champions in different areas uh, around the United States. And I'm really excited about the opportunity to kind of take those lessons learned with our work group and try to start inspiring change here at UC Davis.
2: What kind of barriers have you run into so far and what advice do you have for someone who might want to get this started at their hospital?
4: That's a great question. I'd say reach out to us, reach out to me. I think what I've realized is mentorship is the way. Gail D'Onofrio has been so generous with her time and oversight and helping us. And from, you know, the first week I was here reaching out to her and said, hey, I'd love to get some of these innovative things off the ground, but we have to go back to some of the basics, building blocks. How did you do this? How do I do this? Like nuts and bolts. And taking the time to talk to me and give me feedback, and give our work group feedback from protocols to what is being done at other environments, other communities. So a lot of it has to do with mentorship, feeling comfortable. It's no different in my mind than you're practicing or you're doing a chest tube for the first time, or you need this oversight. I think that's the biggest challenge, but also the biggest solution is finding that mentorship. So for those that are vocal, like myself and Gail, and you know Amy, etc. Reach out to us and we can help kind of, you know, facilitate and show you what we've done so that you can, you know, not have to go through some of those hard battles yourself. Pulse check.
1: Today we have learned firsthand the devastating effects opiates can have in a person's life. We have heard from visionaries like Gail D'Onofrio that are demonstrating that treatment with buprenorphine naloxone is effective and it can and it should be initiated in the emergency department. The game has changed. The goal of our interview today is to introduce this topic, this idea. We're starting the discussion. The goal is not to give you the exact structure of how to set this up in your emergency department. If you want to do this, if you want to go deeper, we encourage you to read the posted resources and contact Josh Elder to discuss more of this nitty gritty. Now we encourage you to continue this discussion in your own department, your own community. Ask yourself, what is my role? What's my responsibility to the opiate epidemic? The game has changed.
2: And we hope you will continue the discussion with us on social media, on our website, ucdavisem.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at eImpulsePodcast. Look in the show notes for a link to Rachel's story unedited and other links to resources we've discussed today. Thanks again to Nate Cooperman and our department at UC Davis for all of the support, and to OM Audio Productions for the countless editing hours. See you next time.